0: Good morning, church. Welcome to our Good Friday service here at Church in the Marketplace. A special welcome also to our people watching online from home as well. My name is Peter. It's my great joint privilege to serve as the Minister of the Word here at Church in the Marketplace. This morning we call this day good. It's a strange name for the day when we come together and in fact celebrate the death of Christ. And my theme this morning will be the relentless love of God, the relentless love of God, that we're celebrating a God who pursues us even to the point of death, who goes literally to hell and back to save us, to redeem us, to bring us into relationship with Him, even when time and time again we turn our back on Him. We're going to be affirming that our faith is not a religion, it is a relationship, a living, breathing relationship with the God who breathed the cosmos into existence through faith in His Son, Jesus the Christ, the God-man who gave His life in order that we might retain ours. The relentless love of God is our theme this morning. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Loving Lord. We come before you this morning with mixed emotions, for today is that worst of days when your Son, the spotless Lamb of God, was nailed to a cross. When you came to earth and gave your life in order that we might retain ours, in order that we might be saved. So we call it good, Father. We say thank you for this amazing day, this incredible act of love, this incredible act of sacrifice. As we gather, we pray that this morning you might open our eyes afresh to this story. We pray that you might help us to see something new in it. We pray that you might deepen our understanding of this profound truth, this profound mystery that is Good Friday, in Jesus' mighty name. The people said, "I'm going to start off our worship this morning with a CMP original." Thanks, Lucy.
1: to life, your blood Blood poured out for me.
2: It's beautiful exchange. This melody of love's redeeming grace.
1: Crucified, bled, and died. Now you stand at your throne. Sacrifice, rose to life. Your blood poured out for me weight of every every sin sin you bore on that darkest day,
3: day. my spirit
1: ever free,
2: because Because
1: you shed your your blood for me.
2: Jesus died for me,
3: now Now I see
2: the the need
3: to live
2: my life
3: for you.
0: Thank you, Lucy. Uh, That's one of her own original pieces. Please take a seat, church. We've got some very talented musicians uh, here at Church in the Marketplace. We'll see another one in just a moment. But for the time being, uh, this morning I'm not going to have a formal Bible reading and message. I'm going to do something a little bit more creative this morning. So to bring you up to speed with the the story so far, I'm going to invite you to cast your eyes to the screen and uh, let the wonderful people from the Bible Project fill you in about the story of Good Friday.
4: So we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we've reached the end of Jesus' long road trip to Jerusalem, He's arrived.
5: So he rides a donkey down the Mount of Olives towards the city. And all these crowds are forming and people are singing, Praise the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down their cloaks in front of him. Why all this royal treatment? Okay, so Israel's ancient prophets promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue his people and rule the world. Other times the prophet spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and peace.
4: So Jesus is activating all these hopes that he's that king and everyone's ecstatic.
5: Well, not everybody. The religious leaders, they think Jesus is a threat to their power and so they're not happy. But even more striking, Jesus himself is distraught. He's actually weeping as he rides. Yeah, why? Well, Jesus can see what is coming. He knows that he won't be accepted as Israel's king. And he knows that Israel will keep going down a destructive path, neglecting the poor, stirring up rebellion against their Roman oppressors. And he knows that it will lead to death it breaks his heart.
4: And it riles him up. The first thing he does in Jerusalem is march into the temple courts and he drives out the money changers, disrupting the entire sacrificial
5: system. Yeah, he's staging a prophetic protest and he stands in the center of the courtyard shouting out words from Israel's ancient prophets. This is supposed to be a place of worship, but you've made it a den of rebels. A den of rebels? Yeah, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, who stood in this same spot, the center of of Israel's religious and political power. And he offered the same critique of Israel's leaders that they're rebellious and corrupt.
4: And they get the message and start to plan to have him
5: killed. Which is no surprise to Jesus. In fact, he planned that all of this would happen during Passover.
4: This is the holy week when Jewish people celebrate their ancient story of how God liberated them from slavery and invited them into a covenant relationship.
5: And so Jesus uses the symbols of Passover to reveal the meaning of his coming death. The broken bread was his broken body. And the wine was his blood that would establish a new covenant relationship between God and Israel. Jesus was going to die for his people and open up a new way forward. After the meal, Jesus takes his disciples to a garden to pray. And he struggles with the very human desire to save his life instead of sacrificing it. But he overcomes this temptation.
4: And it's here where the religious leaders with the temple guards find him and arrest
5: him. Now, Jerusalem was being ruled by the Roman Empire. And so the temple leaders couldn't execute Jesus without permission from their Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And so they make up this charge that Jesus is a rebel king stirring up revolution against the Roman emperor.
4: Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews?
5: And Jesus answers, you say so.
4: Pilate can see that Jesus is an innocent man, and he doesn't
5: deserve death. But the leaders keep insisting that he is dangerous, so they negotiate a compromise. Pilate will release an actual rebel against Rome, a man named Barabbas, instead of Jesus. And so the innocent is handed over in the place of the guilty.
4: Jesus is taken away with two other accused criminals and nailed to a Roman execution device. And people are mocking him. Hey, if you're the messianic king, save
5: yourself and us. But Jesus loved his enemies to the very end, offering hope to one of the criminals dying beside him. And he even prayed for his executors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing.
4: And then the sky darkened as an innocent man Died the
5: death of a rebel. And then Jesus cried out with ancient words from Israel's Psalms Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus died, innocent and alone.
0: That's the story of Good Friday. We're now going to be treated to a musical item by a member of our congregation, Renee Lumpkin, accompanied uh, by Peter. He's going to be performing an item called Via Della Rosa. It is a road in Jerusalem. You can walk to this very day. It is the path that Jesus is said to have taken on that fateful day, uh, the path of tears. Thank you, Renee.
3: Down the linea Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day, the soldiers tried to clear the narrow street, but the crowd were stripes upon his back, and he wore a crown of thorns upon his head, and he bore with every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary. Por la Via Dolorosa, triste día en Jerusalem, los soldados la paso a Jesús. Las leyendas se dan, se caban, para ver aquí evabal ya Cruz, por la vía de Rosa, que es la vía del dolor, como vea vino Cristo. Dolorosa Al Calvario Ya Morir The blood That would cleanse The soul
0: you, Peter, the way of suffering. I want to share with you this morning uh, a new take that you might not be familiar with, uh, an understanding of what the Christian faith truly is. You see, friends, I think there is a misunderstanding out there that the Christian faith, following Jesus, is just one option of many of many different religions you can take off the shelf, a little, uh, you know, one option you can sort of buy into in order to tick the, the religious box in your life. I want to share with you this morning that following Jesus, this God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ he's got nothing to do with religion. In fact, he raged against religion. Religion is all about following rules. Religion is about being legalistic, about ticking boxes, about doing a whole bunch of things in order to to sort of earn God's favor, to worm your way into God's good books and, and not do a whole bunch of other things that might make God angry with you. I want to affirm this morning that The Christian faith, being a follower of Jesus, has got nothing to do with religion and everything to do with simply being in a relationship. Christian faith is not a religion, it is a relationship. It's a relationship with a God who will stop at nothing to bring you into relationship with him, to extend the invitation to you again and again and again to come and be with me, Come and experience life, abundant life. If you've been journeying with us here at church in the marketplace in recent months, you'll know that we've been walking our way through the book of Exodus. It's a story that tells of God's indefatigable love for his people, his relentless love for his people, despite all the times that they would turn their back on him and last year we did the same thing with the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings about how a loving God created the world and wanting to be in relation but time and time again we would turn our back but God would come again. Indeed it is the stories of the scriptures as a whole. The Bible opens up, the story of creation opens up with a beautiful relationship. God created the heavens and the earth in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship. He created Adam and Eve, the first humans, naked and unashamed, in perfect unity, perfect openness with God and with each other, nothing to be ashamed of. It was a picture of perfection, a world without pain and suffering and sickness and death, a world in perfect unity and relationship with both with itself and, and with each other. God would walk and talk with his creation, but tragedy occurred when mankind thought that well, we knew better than God. We turned our back on God. Said, no, no, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to go our own way. Did God really say this? We turned our back on God and sin tragically entered the world. But God in his mercy comes again, comes and seeks out the man and the woman, saying, where are you? What's gone on? And by the way, what is that covering your genitals? Is that fig leaves, if so? What is going on there? Why are you like this? We're ashamed. There was a whole bunch of blame going on. Well, it was was her fault. It was was its fault. It was your fault, God. God, in fact, came and helped those first humans out, Adam and Eve, and sewed for them some garments of of skin so that mankind could survive in what was now a, a hostile world, a broken world you know the story you'll know that Adam and Eve had a couple of sons Cain and Abel and if you if you know the story then you'll know that pretty quickly Cain is plotting evil in fact he's plotting to kill his brother Abel God in his mercy comes to Cain doesn't let him go Cain what are you doing don't do it what are you doing, Cain? He actually warns Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It's an image of like a coiled spring or a, or a cat that's crouched and ready to pounce, ready to consume. But what does, what does Cain do? Well, he does it anyway, doesn't he? Murders his brother, turns his back on God. Again, God comes to Cain. He comes to Cain and says, Cain, Cain, what have you done? Where is your brother? Don't know, none of my business, is it? Cain then goes off and builds an entire civilization built on on murder. But, But God actually, in his great mercy, in his great love, in his great grace, actually protects Cain with a mark to stop anyone taking vengeance upon him. This is the gracious and loving God that we worship. Mankind in its great hubris and its great arrogance in just the next part of the story tries to build a monument to itself, to build a tower to the heavens, to make a name for ourselves. We've been doing so ever since, haven't we? Trying to build great edifices to our own ingenuity, to our own cleverness, to our own greatness. We turn our back and go, no, we're going to do our own thing through our own cleverness, through our own ingenuity. What does God do? They've tried to build a tower to the heavens. And one of the great ironies of scripture, we read that God has to look down, peer down all the way down from heaven to see what they're trying to do, that pathetic effort to try to build their way to the heavens. And he comes again and he mercifully scatters them throughout the face of the earth, lest their evil come together, ability to perform evil and hurt themselves like an adult grabbing a child before he runs across the road or or, or grabbing a child's hand before she puts it on a hot plate. God comes again and saves mankind from itself and scatters it throughout the globe, confuses our language. In only a couple of chapters later, only up to Genesis chapter 6, you'll know. That mankind very quickly turns bad again. In the time of Noah, we're told that the earth was full of great wickedness, strong words, not just sort of bad people, great wickedness, violence, turning their back on God again. Well, what does God do? Again, He cleanses the earth. He does make a just pronouncement and cleanses the earth, but He saves Noah and his family. He says, go and populate, go and multiply. He he bends his battle bow away from the earth, put a rainbow in the sky, his battle bow facing away from the earth, promising to never do it again. Fullness of time, you know, he calls a man by the name of Abram to be a father to the To the nations. He says, He, your descendants, though you be an old man, will be as numerous as stars in the sky. Well, Abraham doesn't think much of this. He's an old man, and his wife Sarah is also very advanced in years. So they say, No, Lord, we've got a better plan. We think we know better than you. So they concoct a plan for Abraham to father a child by Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And what does God do? God comes again and indeed fulfills his promise and provides Abraham and Sarah with a child and also blesses Hagar, uh, the maidservant, and her son as well in the process. Abraham's great-grandson by the name of Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers in a fit of jealousy and rage. They sold their brother to a bunch of, Slave traders were taken down to Egypt. But God, in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, comes again and uses it to raise up Joseph to be the prime minister of Egypt and, in fact, save his people. When his own family are on the point of death from starvation, from a great famine, God is able to use Joseph to save his family, to keep his promise to Father Abraham. And his people flourish down in Egypt and multiply and become a great nation. He raises up a great leader some 400 years later by the name of Moses, miraculously saves the young boy, calls out to Moses, you're going to be a great leader for me. He raises him in the palace of royalty, but still understanding that he is a Hebrew, one of God's chosen people. Uh, Moses, well, he's A flawed character, as we've been studying, he's a flawed leader. In fact, he actually kills a man. He actually takes a man's life and flees to the desert. Says, no, God, you've got the wrong man, not me. He flees out to the wilderness, takes a foreign wife, starts a family and begins a career as a shepherd. His plan is to live out his days out in the wilderness, forgetting about that call upon his life. But what does God do? God comes again, doesn't he? Again comes to Moses, and it's flame on, a flaming bush says, hey, Moses, that job that I've got for you, we're still doing that. That is still on. Let's save our people. We all know the story. God saves his people miraculously through the Passover, through the death of an innocent lamb who protects his people. Are they And they escape uh, slavery in Egypt through the waters of of the Red Sea. A a spectacular, miraculous moment of graciousness and love and and provision. Spectacular provision for his people. Spectacular rescue for his people. as we heard just a couple of weeks ago, what are they doing? They're rescued, they're out of slavery. They've been they're, they're free. And what do they do? They turn their back on God again and start grumbling and moaning, wishing they were back in slavery. And what does God do for them out there in the wilderness when they're saying, We wish we were back in Egypt eating meat? He provides Quail for them each and every night, provides meat for them. You've heard of a KFC two-piece feed. This is the original million-piece feed. Quail covering the ground every night in the morning, manna from heaven, rained down, bread-like substance, rained down from heaven every day that they might trust in him, put their trust in him one more day and one more day and one more day. This went on for 40 years, God providing for them in the desert. They eventually make their way into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But time and time again, they turn their back on God, if you know the story. These are a fickle people. So God would raise up a judge for them. Spectacular people like Deborah or the, uh, that, that character we know as Samson, that strange fellow, or my favorite, Gideon. Go and read the book of Gideon if you have a moment this weekend. He raises up judges to call people back to him to to defeat their enemies time and time again. But this fickle people cried, no, we don't want judges. We want to be like all the other cool kids. We want a king. We want to have a king for ourselves. God says, don't do it. Don't do it. You don't want a king. Yes, we want a king. The king is going to take your sons. He's going to march them off the war and have them slaughtered, as they've been doing every day ever since, still to this very day. The news coming here this morning, more Russian soldiers, a thousand Russian families have lost their sons in this crazy war, conspiring with Xi and China to send more weapons of destruction into that war while the ridiculous West sends our weapons of war over to Ukraine. As one big thuggish bully beats up on another thuggish, corrupt little a bully, that's what's happening, friends. Kings marching sons, other people's sons, off to war. He so says they'll tax you to the pipsqueak. You'll take your daughters by the way as well. You'll make them your mate, his maid servants. No, we want a king. So God grants them what they want and raises up for them. In fact, a uh, a man after his own heart, a mighty King King David, who in fact is a hero of the Israelite people. A man after God's own heart. He brings them peace on every side. For the first time, for the only time, they are in fact a world power under mighty King David. Because you see, David is a good guy. As we know, he is a man after God's own heart, isn't he? Or, uh, or is he? See, David has a problem with rooftops and hot tubs, doesn't he? He sees a beautiful woman bathing by the name of Bathsheba on a a rooftop. And as was king's want back in those days, it was good to be the king. And the king could have whatever he wanted. Well, he wanted Bathsheba. So he had her. He took her for himself. He committed adultery with her and made her pregnant, got her pregnant, and in an effort to cover up the whole sordid affair, conspired to have her husband killed. The great King David, like the other great Jewish hero before him, Moses, was a murderer, an adulterous murderer. These are not particularly spectacular people, friends. These are covetous, polygamous, murderous, adulterous, so please don't tell me oh pete i can't help you out and do anything for church because i'm not up to it i'm not worthy please i've had a gut full of people telling me oh i i can't do that because i don't know that or i'm not experienced enough or i'm not holy enough i don't want to hear it the great heroes of scripture were flawed fallen characters that god used they were just willing to have a go, to have a crack. What do you think I'm doing right now? Desperately trying to remember the stuff that I learned an hour ago on my iPad, hoping that I don't forget to tell you something. I'm just a punk from the Hills District. There's nothing special about ministers and priests and rabbis and pastors. We're just people. So as a sidebar this Good Friday, I'm um, just please know God needs you to step up and take your place in his church, in his kingdom this day. What does God do with David? He comes again, doesn't he? In another act of spectacular graciousness, he blesses Bathsheba with a son by the name of Solomon through whom the Saviour would come. Through a series of kings and a number of centuries whereby Again, the people turned their back on God time and time and time again. God would come again and and raise up a a prophet to speak forth his truth to the people, saying, turn back to me. Come back to me. Stop heading down this path. You know the names from your Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And by the way, it wasn't even just his own people. The prophet... uh, the, the great prophet of Jonah was, was called to, to speak to a foreign people, the people of, of Nineveh, and Assyrian people, a terribly violent, brutal people. Did you know there are still stone frescoes, stone carvings that shows Assyrians flaying their opposition, skinning the, the, the enemy army alive. These were brutal, wicked, heinous people, such is the extent of potential for darkness in the in the human heart. But God called Jonah to go and testify go as and, well. go and minister, go and preach to these people. What did Jonah say? Nope, not doing it, and tries to run in the other direction. What does God do? He Provides a big fish and convinces Jonah, yeah, no, that's still happening, Jonah. We're, we're doing this. And off he goes and preaches to this wicked city of Nineveh. They repent and, and turn to God. This is the story of the Old Testament time and and time again. The people turning away, God coming again, being relentless in his love for them, relentlessly pursuing them time after time after time, all throughout the story of Scripture. God turning up and saying, come to me. I invite you to be in a relationship with me. The fullness of time, of course. God provided one ultimate solution, one ultimate invitation. He fulfilled the prophecies of old. He fulfilled his, his promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and the promises of the, of the people of old. And they eventually, after being transported away to, into captivity to Babylon. He eventually brings them back into the promised land under the leadership of people like Ezra and Nehemiah and raises up a Messiah. God breaks into human history. He breaks into time and space itself in the form of a baby born in the town of David, a little hick town by the name of Bethlehem, the town of David where he would have been keeping his sheep a century, about a millennia beforehand, born to an unwed, pregnant teenager, cause of great scandal back in the day, of course, born in a stable, no place to lay his head, went through his whole ministry having no place to lay his head. This Jesus went on to preach incredible graciousness to people like Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a short man who was a filthy tax collector, hated by his fellow humans, He ripping off his fellow Jews. I mean, nobody likes paying taxes, but this is next level. He was not just a tax collector. He was working for the Roman oppressors. He was collecting taxes from his own people, in order to pay Rome, and then charging extra and pocketing it for himself. He was despised and hated by his own people. One can only imagine what was going on inside this man's mind. He would have been the most despised man in his whole town. What does Jesus do? He comes to Zacchaeus, doesn't he? He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm meeting at your place tonight. Jesus grants him validity by eating with him, saying, saying, I'll be your friend, Zacchaeus. I want to be in relationship with you. Despite it all, despite all of your sin, despite all of the thieving you've done, I want to be in relationship with you, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is transformed. Zacchaeus agrees he's going to pay back all that he's stolen many times over. He's radically set free, this Zacchaeus. You might remember the story of a woman by the well, a, a, a pagan woman, a, a foreign woman by a, a, a well who has been divorced not once, not twice. She's been divorced actually not three, no, not four, five times. And the bloke she's with now isn't even really a husband. She's at the well in the middle of the day, not wanting to be near any of the other women. What does Jesus do? He turns up, a good Jewish boy, with this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day at a well. It's not really the done thing. He says, I know what you need. You're thirsty. You need living water. I will provide that living water for you and you'll never be thirsty again. She goes and is one of the great evangelists and goes tell everyone about this Jesus fellow. You might remember the woman who is caught in the act of adultery. There's no doubt that she is, in fact, uh, guilty. You might wonder, where's the man in all of this? But really, she's just being used. She's being set up in order to set up Jesus. But what does he do? Jesus comes to this woman, and he actually kneels down beside her. He kneels down in the dirt and just starts doodling in the dirt, just with her, just beside her in a shame. She's been dragged out of bed, no doubt half naked and cast out into the public square to be exposed and trying to trap Jesus. But he sits there with her. Just starts doodling in the dirt until one by one all of her accusers slink away. She says, where have all of your accusers gone? Neither do I accuse you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You don't need to be with this guy. I'm sure you can think of Many other stories, many other Jesus stories, ones that resound with you. Maybe some of the stories he told of a, of a, of a recalcitrant sinner, a, 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 a rebel of a son that squanders half the family's wealth and the father that runs and embraces his son, kills the most important prize possession of the family to celebrate. What's your particular favorite story? Or better still, let me ask you this morning, how do you fit into this picture. How have you turned your back on on God? And how have you experienced him coming again into your life? Let me leave you with one final example, the ultimate example of this relentless God who desires to be in relationship. He will stop at nothing to be in relationship with us. He broke into human history in the form of Jesus of of Nazareth. He rode into town, triumphant as a king. We celebrated that just last week. All Jerusalem gathered together, Hosanna, come and save us. He was a rock star at this point. But of course, as we know, that crowd that day was fickle, weren't they? Those shouts of Hosanna soon turned to crucify him, crucify him. You see, the glory they wanted was really just for themselves, and national kind of pride. Kick out the Romans. They just were really all about themselves. It became obvious that he wasn't going to be that person, so they so quickly turned. They actually decided that they wanted a, 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 a filthy rebel, a violent criminal by the name of Barabbas, Barabbas, the son of Rabbas, to be released instead. We want Barabbas. Pilate, who was the guy in charge at the time, the Roman, a Roman, if ever there was an empire that would not broach any rebellion, it would have been Rome. And the Roman governor, a fellow by the name of Pilate, said, what are you talking, to- I can find nothing, I, he's done nothing, this man is not guilty of anything, I can't find, Why are you talking, to- he's not guilty, he doesn't deserve death. The Roman gov- The Roman, standing up for Jesus at this point. But still, they relented, crucify him. No, we want him dead. We want him gone. They marched him up the Via Della Rosa. They rammed a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him and mocked him and spouted him, stripped him. They gambled for his clothing and they nailed him to a tree. And then in one of the most spectacular Moments of graciousness and love as they're nailing his flesh, as nails are piercing bone and sinew and flesh. What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Jesus that day did indeed give his life. He actually went into Hades itself. Peter says he went to hell itself and preached to the captives down there in order to set them free. He said he has the very keys of death itself. Some people, of course, go on turning their back on Jesus day after day after day. Some people don't even sort of like to admit it very much. They don't even maybe make a distinct turn away. Maybe, maybe you... I've simply just been quietly edging away year after year after year trying to make it so that no one even really kind of notices others of us turn up the volume so loud with the world that we might even be here at church every single week giving the appearance of being in relationship but in actual fact we're really just heading our own way, doing our own thing, not really wanting to hear what God has to say, the way that he's calling us back to him, the way that he's calling us back to repentance. I see it all the time. I see it every day. I'd head off to some family and this weekend, people just dialing up the headphones, doing the stuff of the world. Not bad people, not bad stuff. Family and jobs, it's all good stuff, but just slowly inching their way away from God. Some people run from God all the days of their life and they run all the way to the grave. The good news of Good Friday, however, is that even the grave can't defeat this Jesus. Even the grave is not beyond his reach. He descended to the dead, preached to the captives there. And on Sunday we will learn how The Heavenly Father raised the Son back to new life in order that we too might be brought back to new life, that we too might be able to experience resurrection life with him this day and indeed all the days. Isaiah chapter 59 tells of how our sin makes it hard for us to see God's face, to hear his voice, but it says his arm is not short. His arm reaches in and saves us, saves us from the worst fate of all. That is an eternity without God, separation from God. This is a loving God who comes time and time and time again, calling out to you, come back to me, return to me, be in relationship with me and live. This is the God who will stop at nothing to save you, to save you from yourself, to save you from the foolish decisions, to save you from all those times you thought you knew better and in effect made yourself your own God and went your own way. It leads only to destruction. But thanks be to God. He sent his own son into the world to pay the price that should have fallen upon ourselves. He took upon himself the punishment that was deserved for us. We call it the great exchange. We receive... His blessing. We receive His goodness. We receive His holiness. Praise God. Our sins are washed clean, whiter than the snow. Friend, I invite you this day, if you haven't already, to make this Jesus your Lord and your Savior. You're the boss of your life, I tell the Scripture kids at Waverly Public School. Make Him the boss of your life today. It will be the best decision you ever make. You will experience abundant, eternal resurrection life, not just pie in the sky when you die, but in this life as well. Abundant life in this life and the next. Turn to Him today. Come into relationship with this relentless God today and live. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to invite you to pray and to pray a Good Friday prayer. And I'm going to invite you to In a moment, we're going to have a declaration of of forgiveness in just a moment. But why don't we just spend a moment in prayer, confessing to God all of those times when we have turned aside, when we have gone our own way. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for your relentless love. Thank you that you love us even to the grave. Father, we say thank you for... the gift of Jesus Christ. We say thank you that you broke into the world to make sure that our relationship was always available to us. We say thank you, Father, that you never force yourself upon us. It is always our choice. So, Father, we commit ourselves afresh this day to turning towards you, living in covenant with you, to follow your good, life-giving precepts for this life. Yielding our lives, surrendering our lives, handing over the reins the steering wheel of our lives and saying, here, Lord, come and take the wheel. I am yours. I surrender to you this day. Have your way this day and every day in my life. Thank you for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you that death has been defeated. Thank you that the power of the grave no longer holds sway. May we each take hold of the life that is freely available to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to cast your eyes to a screen. We're going to do something a little bit traditional now. We're going to have what's called a, a declaration of, of forgiveness. It's going to be drawing on a a passage of, of Scripture from, again, that prophet Isaiah. Isaiah writes this. He says, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Friends, hear then the good news of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven be to God indeed. Amen. We're going to uh, stand and sing once more. Let's, let's sing together. Amen and amen. Before we head off this morning, let me just let you know uh, we would love to see you on Easter Sunday at dawn uh, down at Bronte Beach. We have a beautiful dawn service. Sun comes up over Bronte Beach. We'd love to see you at 6 a.m. for the early rises, then back here at uh, Church in the Marketplace at 10 a.m. for our Easter Sunday celebration. We're going to conclude by singing the old rugged cross. Let's sing.
1: An old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best. a wondrous attraction for me for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my draw. Stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For t'was on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died, to pardon and sanctify. for a crown to the old rugged cross i will ever be true it's shame and reproach gladly bear then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever
0: Across cross all the days of your life in order that one day you may exchange it for a crown and may the grace of our lord jesus christ the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with us all now and forevermore amen